We're studying Exodus in these morning services just now, so let's turn there now as we read God's Word together. We're going to be um, looking at the first half of Exodus 4. We'll read in from slightly earlier, from Exodus 3, verse 16, page 46, if you have one of the church Bibles. Exodus 3, 16. God has appeared to Moses at the burning bush, revealed his name, I am who I am, and called him to go to Pharaoh to call for the release of God's people from slavery. So we pick up at Exodus 3.16. Let's read and hear together God's Word. God says, "'Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, "'The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying,' I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians." Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground." But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. 
And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Amen. God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's pray once more. Again, Lord, we seek your help as we come now to your word. We thank you for that word. It is precious. It is truth. It is what we need. And so give us open ears, we pray, to hear and give us hearts ready to do. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please return with me to Exodus 4, 4, 1 to 17. There's an old story about a minister who received a letter inviting him to pastor a church in the Bahamas. Um, He was being visited by a friend, and he was explaining that he was taking time to consider prayerfully whether the call of God was in this. His visitor asked what his wife thought, to which he replied, oh, she's upstairs packing. We've spent three weeks here at Horeb with Moses at the burning bush. The call of God could hardly have been clearer, but Moses seems to be having difficulty. I guess uh, in some ways we should maybe sympathize with him a bit. When he tucked into his cornflakes that morning, he had no idea that the day before him held anything other than what he'd been doing for 40 years, looking after the sheep. He's probably standing there still trying to wrap his head around what exactly is happening with this bush that burns but doesn't burn, and with these commands of God that seem to make no sense to him. Uh, Because the biggest problem of all is that he hasn't been called to the Bahamas. He's been called to go and confront the head of ISIS, a call for the release of every Christian prisoner in Syria and Iraq. That would be the equivalent today, or it would be if... ISIS happened to be the most powerful nation on earth. That's the kind of call that's coming to Moses. So we may well have some sympathy for him, but it does start to wear a bit thin, doesn't it, as the chapter moves on. To begin with, it might look like he's being suitably humble. Then it might look like he's just trying to clarify the terms of his mission. But by the time we come to the first half of chapter 4, we're starting to get the sense that Moses is just trying to squirm out of this any way he can. Here you have a soldier on the front line, there's a private uh, on the front line, and the order comes from his general to take that position over there, and the private says, you know, I I think I'd rather not. You know, I I, I quite like being here, this is nice, I like it here, Uh, so thanks, but no thanks. And the extraordinary thing is that as we see Moses resisting the call of God, Uh, The extraordinary thing is the sheer patience of God in this chapter. Um, He's been preparing Moses for this all his life. He has heard the cries of his people. Now he's going to bring these things together and send Moses to save his people, and Moses is trying to opt out. So we have a reluctant messenger, but we also have 
the relentless mercy of a God whose heart of love is set upon his people. So we have a kind of battle of wills going on here. I wonder who will win. At the end of chapter 3, God wrote the history of the future. He told Moses in amazing detail what's going to unfold right through to the Exodus. And he did that in response to the first uh, two objections that Moses had had raised. Who am I to do this and who are you? Uh, Because I need to know in order to explain to the people who has sent me. So now he adds another objection, chapter 4, verse 1. But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. Still echoes in his ears, doesn't it? That cry from chapter 2 when he tried to intervene to do justice in Egypt between two Israelites, who made you a prince and a judge over us? There's a a theme, and again, maybe we should have some sympathy for Moses because there's a theme running all the way through Exodus about the rebelliousness of the people against the leadership of Moses. He's always running up against the people um, not wanting to submit to his leadership. But in response here, the Lord doesn't rebuke him, but instead teaches him sign language. That's what we have here. We have a section on sign language. He gives him three signs which will speak to the people, and that's the way that God himself puts it. Uh, What he says literally at verse 8 is that if the people don't listen to the voice of the first sign, they might believe the voice of the second sign. The signs have a voice. The signs speak. They say something. God refers to them later at verse 21 as the miracles that I have put in your power, which maybe suggests that Moses has authority from God for now to perform these miracles at will as required by the circumstances. To call them uh, miracles or wonders emphasizes the astonishing nature of them, the amazing power of Yahweh who is able to do these things. But but these are not just divine conjuring tricks. These, These are signs that say something. These three specific phenomena are purposeful and meaningful. They have deep significance. So, God gives these three signs, and He gives previews of two of them, the staff turning into the snake uh, and back, the hand becoming diseased and then healthy again. He can't preview the water of the Nile because the Nile is a long way from Horeb. Um, in, in time, Moses will use these. We, we almost just skip past it um, at, at the end of the chapter of verse 30. Moses performs these signs, and the people believe him. And so, so this is purposeful. This, this works, if we can put it that way. Um, in fact, not only does it say the people believed, it says they understood that the Lord had visited them because He had seen their affliction. They understood this, and they understood it from the signs to some degree. So the signs spoke to them, and they heard what they said. What did the signs say? The signs say two things very clearly. The first is that God is with Moses. God is with Moses. The signs do what signs usually do in the Bible. They, they serve to confirm or authenticate the claims of the person who, who can do them. Here's someone who claims to have a message from God, and to prove it, he's doing things which only God could enable him to do. Why, why should we believe what you're saying, Moses? Who appointed you to lead us? Well, watch this. Watch this. Signs authenticate the message. Alec Mateer, a commentator, makes a, a suggestion about the significance of the signs for Moses himself. You can, you can decide if you think this is right. Um, by instructing him to pick up the snake by the tail, which is a stupid way to pick up a snake, um, God shows Moses that he is able to protect his obedient servant from harm. 
by making his hand leprous and then clean, God shows Moses that he is able to take something polluted and ritually impure and cleanse it and renew it and use it. By his control over the water of the Nile, which was the symbol of Israel's power, God shows Moses that in all his weakness and insufficiency, you know, who am I? It doesn't matter, Moses. That's not the point. In all his weakness, God himself is powerful and sufficient. So, so Matthias suggests that the signs for just in the experience of Moses himself receiving them, that there's real significance for him personally. That, that might be right, but whether it is or not, what is certainly true is that these signs are significant to God's people there in Egypt. Because as well as telling them that God is with Moses, these signs say loud and clear, God is against Egypt. God is against Egypt. Seeing these signs, the people would have recognized immense significance in them because they're designed to point to the work that God is about to do. Striking that they all concern things that were deeply significant in Egyptian life. I mentioned a few weeks ago um, the moment in 1922 when Howard Carter first peered into the tomb of Tutankhamun, who was Pharaoh about 100 years after the Exodus. It was actually another three years before they were able to open the sarcophagus and find a coffin, and then another coffin inside that one, and then another coffin inside that one. So three years, 1925, uh, when they finally opened the innermost of the three coffins, and discovered there what would become one of the most widely recognized pieces of art in human history. You, you know it. You've seen it. You're very familiar with it. This is it here. The funeral mask of Tutankhamun. It's just magnificent, isn't it? Absolutely incredible thing. The headdress is a representation of what the pharaohs would have worn in life. And notice what you're looking at when you look at a pharaoh. In the center of his forehead are two animals. The one on the left, as we look at it there, is a vulture. It's the symbol of the goddess Nekbet, who was the goddess of Upper Egypt. On the right is the goddess Wajet, the protector of Lower Egypt, who is depicted as a coiled cobra. It is, um, it's called a uraeus, that coiled cobra. And it's a threat. It's, a, it's an open threat. As you face Pharaoh, Pharaoh is saying to you, threaten my interests and I will strike. Cobra is, is there, up, hood raised, ready, poised to strike its enemies. So the snake is the clearest possible symbol of the power and sovereignty of Pharaoh and of all the gods of Egypt. To have power over the snake is to have power over Egypt. The sign speaks, doesn't it? Staff, down it goes, becomes a snake. Pick it up, it becomes his staff. God has power over Egypt. Yahweh is the true God. And all the might of the greatest superpower on earth is subject to him. The second sign is the leprous hand, although leprosy is a general term rather than a medical term. It probably refers to various serious infectious skin diseases. Uh, the thing about being an ancient superpower is that even if you can protect yourself against the Persians, you can't protect yourself against measles or against all sorts of different diseases that might come your way. Um, diseases like this were feared in that part of the world because all the wisdom and sorcery of Egypt could do nothing to cure it. 
sign speaks, telling everyone that God has the power to strike people with disease, and He has the power to cure incurable disease. And as the story of the Exodus unfolds, God will use that power against Egypt and in favor of His people. And in an even more direct trailer for forthcoming plague and pestilence, you then have the third sign, the pouring out of the water from the Nile, which turns into blood. Why is that so significant? Well, Moses knew the answer to that without needing a satellite image, but it might help us um, if we look at it. And there you have Egypt off to the, to the west there, and it's not difficult to see, is it, why the Nile was so important to Egypt and why actually it still is. Of the Nile snaking its way up there, all the vegetation there on the banks of the Nile, and then the delta uh, at the top on the Mediterranean there as it broadens out, um, just this, this green, um, the only place where there is green. Um, to this day, 95% of the population of Egypt lives beside the Nile or in the Nile de- Delta. There are some of the, some of the most populated um, areas on the planet. The point is that for Egypt, the Nile is the source of life and prosperity. It's described in ancient Egyptian literature as the father of life and the mother of all, bringing blessing and riches to the land. Again, it's it's deified. There's There's a God of the Nile who has the same happy, the God of the Nile. To threaten the Nile is to threaten the existence of Egypt. So, as Moses comes to persuade the elders and to confront the Pharaoh, one of the signs he brings is that he is able to turn the source of all life in Egypt into the symbol of death. Water turns to blood. God is with Moses. God is against Egypt. And he makes it clear through signs that he graciously gives, when by this stage, to be honest, he could justifiably be raging at Moses, but graciously gives him these signs. Faced by a reluctant messenger, relentless mercy perseveres with patience and with grace. It is easy, isn't it? It's easy a distance of 3,000 years to, uh, to criticize Moses. We, we haven't been called to do what Moses was called to do. And uh, the, the, truth is, the truth is that all of our faith muscles are weak, aren't they? That's, that's the honest truth. We, we're called very often to do far less than, than Moses has been called to do. And we are still very often reluctant to do the things that God calls us to do. We're slow to trust. We're quick to doubt. Our fallen instincts tell us constantly, walk by sight, not by faith. If only we had signs. If only we had miracles. This is a whole (laughs) vast parts of the Christian church. Um, Live off of this instinct. Exist off the back of this instinct. We need signs. We need miracles. We need amazing things to be happening. If only God would give us signs. If only we had something astonishing to convince us that God is with us and has power over our enemies. If only God could understand that we are still weak and we still need signs. Next Sunday morning, we'll we'll see four people baptized. We'll see a sign administered four times. And we will hear its voice, the voice of the sign as it tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 
and as it reassures us that the one who trusts in Jesus has died with him and risen with him so that the sting of death is drawn and our victory is secure. We'll do that next Sunday morning. Next Sunday evening, we'll come to a table, which is a sign, the sign of the supper. We'll hear the voice of the sign as it tells us that the one who looks to Christ in faith participates in his body and blood, receives all the benefits of his death and resurrection of his gospel. As, as we, the, the sign tells us that, that he nourishes us in faith. The, the sign is speaking to us, the very nature of it, as an eating and drinking sign. It's, it speaks to us. God is feeding you by his Spirit, with himself, so that you grow strong in him. He will preserve you until the day when, when you go to Christ or Christ comes to you. God still speaks sign language. It's part of His relentless mercy. So back to the story. Armed with these amazing signs, Moses storms off to confront Pharaoh. Well, no. Verse 10, Oh my Lord, I, I am not eloquent. Either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Uh, literally, he says, I am not a man of words. I am heavy of mouth and heavy of tongue. The problem here is that it's inherently unlikely that Moses was a babbling idiot, having been educated in the royal court. Uh, Stephen describes him in Acts 7 as mighty in his words and deeds. And of course, he's kind of given the game away here because we've got all of his writings, including the book of Exodus, to show us just how eloquent uh, Moses really was. So his protest is unconvincing. There's actually been a huge amount of debate over the years, far too much, I think, over what exactly Moses meant when he said that he was slow of speech and tongue. Um, there have been all sorts of speculation. You know, Moses must have had some kind of speech impediment. He had a lisp, he had a cleft palate, he had, he had something, something that, that was physically preventing him from, from speaking very clearly. Or, or maybe someone else pops up and says, maybe, you know, he's been away from Egypt for 40 years. Maybe his Egyptian's just a bit rusty. You know, he's, he's worried he's going to be standing there in front of Pharaoh and he'll say something and he's thinking, oh, where's my vocabulary cards? Um, and, and, you know, people come up with all sorts of ideas. He won't be quick-witted enough to, to counter uh, Pharaoh and his diplomatic advisors. Discovered after 40 years, the, the sheep weren't very good verbal sparring partners. You know, it's just kind of out of, out of practice with all this stuff. I, I'm fairly sure that Moses is just claiming to not be a very strong speaker, and I'm fairly sure that it's not true. It's, it's just an excuse. The honest truth is that Moses is suffering from the worst speech impediment of them all, which is called disobedience. Disobedience. That's what's stopping him from speaking. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to speak out for God and for his people. I'm fine here. Thank you very much. This is a nice life. This is good. I like this. This is relaxing. Do you notice how as we go through this, bringing it out a bit with the kids on the, on the screen there, as we go through this, God's respons responses to Moses just get gradually a little bit sharper as we go. He could have, I mean, God could have called Moses out at the beginning of this chapter because actually Moses is just disobedient from the start. Look at this. Glance back to chapter 3, verse 18. If you look at 3.18, God tells Moses in so many words that they, the elders of Egypt, will listen to your voice. Now look at chapter 4, verse 1, where Moses replies, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. 
It's absolutely amazing. It's direct. It's the same phrase. Moses looks God in the face and says, sorry, you're wrong. You're wrong. God shows amazing patience with him to give him these signs. Now, in verse 11, I like that. It's just like he kind of calls Moses out on this excuse. You know, do you think you're telling me something I don't know? Who made man's mouth? Who made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the I am? What he says. Is it not I, the I am? Now therefore go and I will be. There it is again, because remember, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. It's the same verb form. So, so is it not I, the I am? Now therefore go and I am will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Honestly, Moses, you, you think this can't work? Moses, I am speaking to you through a bush. Now, if I can use shrubbery, I can use you, trust me. I, I know what I'm doing. I've already told you exactly what, what you need to say, and now I'm telling you that I'll be with you when you say it. And there's something then just a bit, to be honest, a bit pathetic about Moses' reply, isn't there? Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. What he says, is, literally he says, send whoever you like. Um, but but it, it means whoever you like out of the whole wide world, but not me. That, that's what he means. This is his speech impediment. That's what's stopping him from going. Sheer disobedience. And the stunning thing is that God is not only going to make this man into a great leader, he is going to make him specifically into the greatest of all prophets apart from Christ. The prophet is the man who speaks for God. The very thing that Moses is refusing to do. Moses' mouth is going to be opened and opened spectacularly. But he records all of this for us because he wants us not admiring what a great prophet Moses is, but admiring the grace and patience and relentless mercy of the God who called him and used him despite his unwillingness. All the glory goes to God, and Moses wants us to know it. Obedience is the issue. When God calls, do we hear? When God sends, do we go? Do we gladly and swiftly set about His work, or are we too busy with our own plans for our lives? I, I'm guessing, if I can make one particular application of this, I'm guessing that, that many of us, as we consider Christ's call to make Him known to others, can sympathize with these words of Moses. I, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. I, I just never know what to say. Uh, from Moses, we learn that a sense of personal inadequacy is one thing. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a, there's a kind of healthy humility before God. But where that turns into disobedience, that, that's another thing altogether. And, and when you think about it, well, consider this. How many Christians do you know who, if you said to them, tell me how it was that you became a Christian, their reply would be something along the lines of, well, you know, I had, I had various questions, and I sat down with this guy, and his answers were just brilliant. You know, it was like he had an essay on, on every one. He just knew everything. And, and the way that he expressed him, his eloquence was amazing. You should have heard him speak. How many people would, would actually say that? Versus how many people would say, well, 
I knew someone. I had a friend, and you know, I, I had grown to love and respect this person, and they just told me, they just spoke to me very simply about what Jesus had come to mean to them, what he can mean to anyone. Remember, remember last time, Moses, it's not about you. It's about you and your ability. When Jesus sent out the twelve to proclaim the gospel in Matthew 10, he told them they would face persecution, and he told them not to be anxious about what they would say because it would be given to them, and the Holy Spirit would help them. Our circumstances are, are different, but our God is not. To speak for God is not an impossible task. Many of us as Christians have become convinced, we've given up because we've become convinced that to speak for God is an impossible task. I cannot do it. I am not eloquent. Please, Lord, anyone else in the whole world, but not me. God says, I I don't need your brilliance. I just need you to be mine. I just need you to be looking to me and trusting me. I will be with your mouth. I will teach you what you shall speak. Turn that into a prayer. Lord, give me opportunities to speak to my friends about you and be with my mouth when you do. Teach me what to say. Now, that doesn't mean we can't prepare ourselves ahead of time. We can and should, and the problem sometimes is that we don't think through in advance. Well, if I had the opportunity, how, how, would, I, how would I do this? But, but, when that moment comes, what we need is God's Spirit working in us and working in our friend. That's what makes the difference. So whenever and wherever he calls us, our response is to be one of swift obedience. Um, I mentioned when we began this series that the whole history of God's people, the whole of the story of Exodus, uh, through the Exodus, journey to the promised land, is intended, was intended from the beginning to point us to the gospel. Christ redeems his people from slavery to sin and death, and then through many trials and through much disobedience, he leads them to promised glory. And and because of that, there are many parallels between Moses as the small r redeemer of God's people in Exodus and Christ as the capital R redeemer of all of God's people in the gospel. In all sorts of ways, and we'll see this more as the story progresses, we learn from Moses what it looks like for a Savior to come to God's people. This this great escape is, is prefiguring, pointing us forward to the greatest escape to come. So Moses um, shows us what it looks like for a Savior to come to God's people, but here, here, it's it's not by parallel, it's by contrast, isn't it? Because Moses is a reluctant messenger. His reluctance to go just contrasts starkly with the willingness of Jesus to hear and obey the call of God, to, to go to His people, and remember that, that Christ's part in this drama, the work that Christ was sent to do, is, it was not simply that He would call God's people to follow Him, not simply that He would call on God's enemies to release them. The, the part that God gave Christ to play was, in the equivalent of the story of the Exodus, you are going to be the Passover lamb. Your part in this is to die. So what Christ is called to is infinitely worse than what Moses is called to. And yet, what does he say all through his life? He says, my food and drink is to do the will 
of the Father who sent me. And, and even when in Gethsemane, even when in his human nature he recoils from the horror of what lies before him, he says, if, if there is any other way, please. There's an echo there, isn't there, of Moses? There must be some other, somebody else, come on. If there is any other way, please, but, immediately, but, not as I will, but as you will. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And so he continues and completes his lifelong obedience to the Father in all things for the sake of you and me. Contrast, not parallel. Well, with, the, with, that, with that outbreak of naked disobedience, send someone else, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Verse 14. The extraordinary thing is that relentless mercy still continues. The, uh, the people must be saved, and so Moses will go because God has called him to go, and God doesn't make mistakes, but it turns out that he already has a plan to enlist Moses' brother Aaron as a spokesman. He is coming out to you, Moses. Um, and then God extends what he said earlier about being with Moses' mouth and telling him what he would say. So, look at verse 15. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Which is a way of saying Aaron is going to say exactly what you tell him to say, and nothing more and nothing less. He will, he will obey your command as if you were God. Um, one thing is supremely clear here. These are God's words because this is God's work. God is sending His messengers out, and He's saying, the words that you take will be My words. Reminded me um, strongly of First Peter, um, Second Peter, sorry, what, what Peter says there about, about the Scriptures, about how no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There's an absolutely foundational truth for the Christian faith. Men spoke from God, and that's what we see happening here. God makes it clear to Moses that whether it's, whether it's Moses or whether it's Aaron is not the point. Whether it's Paul or Apollos is not the point. Whoever it might be is not the point. This is about God's words doing God's work. And so, we'll follow Moses' response next week, but as we close, we come back to the question of obedience. Will Moses obey the call of God? And will the people of Israel obey the call of God delivered through him and Aaron? That question of obedience will become more and more relevant, more and more important as the story of the Exodus moves on. In a few chapters' time, we'll be poised. Will the people obey the instructions of God for the Passover? Because the lives of the firstborn depend on it. Later, when, when they're redeemed out of Egypt, will the people obey God on the journey to the promised land? Once they have the law, will the people obey God in their new life as His redeemed people? Alec Matir, to go back to him, Matir says, as we'll see ever more clearly as we make our way through Exodus, the primary mark, the hallmark of the people of God should be stamped on us mark of authenticity, the hallmark of the people of God is obedience to His Word. The Lord looks for trust, loves to be trusted, 
reacts against the withholding of trust and assures His people that the way of trust is the way of life. So, with supreme patience, God calls Moses. And uh, there's a lovely touch in the closing verse of this section. He reminds him to take his staff. Moses, you're going to need that. Just remember and take that with you. The staff will become very important in the book. It it is not a magic wand. We're not in Hogwarts. Um, But it is an instrument which God uses for his purposes. He'll use it to turn the Nile into blood. He'll use it at the unleashing of the plagues. The, The staff will be held out. He'll use it at the parting of the Red Sea to bring water from the rock to prevail in battle against the Amalekites as the staff is held on high. Francis Schaeffer, who founded the IPC, once suggested that the staff, in a sense, is symbolic of Moses and of all of us. It was a piece of dead wood. It was nothing more. And when at the beginning of this passage, I, I love what happened. You know, Moses is standing, how, you know, what's, what's going to happen? You know, they won't believe me. And Moses says to him, what's that in your hand? And he says, uh, staff? You know, and I'd love to, love to hear the tone of voice with which he said it, because, uh, because he must have been thinking, what on earth has that got to do with anything? This is just a staff. It's just a bit of wood. Nothing special about the staff. But the interesting thing, said Schaefer, is that by verse 20, the staff of Moses has become the staff of God. That's how it's described in verse 20, the staff of God. Moses took the staff of God. This is what Schaefer said. Sometimes... Um, well, this is my summary of what Schaefer said. Sometimes Christians um, can feel that they too are, well, dead wood. We use that expression, don't we? Dead wood for something that's unproductive, nothing to offer. What can God do with me? Maybe everyone else in the church has something to offer, but what can God do with me? And it undermines any sense of usefulness in you until you find yourself saying to God, send someone else because I don't have anything to offer. Schaefer said, the staff was nothing until it became the staff of God, and then it was something. And in the same way, Moses was nothing until he became the Moses of God. And then God could use him. And in the same way, you may be nothing but if you become the you of God, you in God's hand, you handed over to Him and available for His purpose, then who knows what will happen? It doesn't need your brilliance because it's not about you. But He's looking for your obedience. He's looking for your heart and for your life. And with the heart and life surrendered to Him, You don't know what will happen next because His mercy is still relentless. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You use reluctant messengers and servants. You are gracious. You're patient. You know us. You know us to the core of who we are, You understand that we are dust. You know that we are weak, that we are frail, that we are slow to trust, quick to doubt. 
you know all of this, and you work with us so patiently. Some of us can look back over lives. We think we look back and think we've been Christians for so long, and yet, and yet, how far do we have to go? How far? We know, we know enough of our own hearts to know that we do not trust you and love you as we should. So thank you that you are a gracious and patient God and that your mercy is relentless. Thank you that you use fallen and flawed men and women. And we pray that by your grace, we might be those who are available to you, those who are in your hand, the people of God. Take us and use us for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.